This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This episode is brought to you by GEA. Around the world, every second liter of beer is brewed with the aid of systems and processes from GEA because their solutions address even the smallest details of the brewing process. GEA's range of services include everything from engineering, manufacturing, delivery, installation, automation, servicing, and more. At GEA, their goal is to help brewers make more beer of the highest quality in a cost-efficient and sustainable manner. To learn more, visit GEA.com and be sure to follow the GEA Craft Brewing page on Facebook. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Bogner, co-founder, editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. My guest on the podcast today is Sean Lawson of Lawson's Finest Liquids in Warren, Vermont. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here, Jamie. I really appreciate your interest in in me and and our brewery. Well, we've been trying to get a conversation together uh, for the magazine and other reasons for you know it seems like a good eighteen months now. But uh, we've been patient, and uh, and it's fantastic to finally talk to you. And I'm glad that we can do it in the context of the podcast. It's good to be here. Well, that lines up pretty well with the busiest eighteen months of my entire life uh, working on our new production brewery and tap room and. Uh, retail store up in uh, Waitsfield, Vermont. Big things are afoot for you, but uh, you know you got started on what is quite possibly the smallest of commercial scales as a uh, minuscule you mm-hmm. know, consumer uh, business, mm-hmm. uh, you know, brewing in small batches uh, you know, from, from your home. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, you know, where that brewing interest, uh, you know, how that budded, and how you made the decision to kind of move from hobby into uh, profession in this it's a long arc it started yeah. back in uh 1990 uh when i was a student at the university of vermont up in burlington vermont and my buddy matt robinson came over one day and he brought a couple of his home brews and cracked them open and he poured them in a glass and i took a sip i was like wow matt this is like it's one of the best beers I've ever had. This is better than what you can buy in the store. Can you show me how? And he's like, of course, let's make up some homebrew. And, you know, a week later, uh, he came over and we were cooking up a batch of homebrew in, in my kitchen at the end of uh, Lafayette Place in, in downtown Burlington, uh, my apartment there. And that really started my love of, of homebrewing and brewing in general is where it all started. And so right after college, I went out to ski bum out in Colorado and I went all over town looking for a job couldn't get one because it wasn't ski season yet so we went to the Breckenridge pub and brewery at the end of the day and pulled up a bar stool with my buddy who was equally unsuccessful finding a job that day and and we ordered some beers I asked the bartender you guys aren't hiring by any chance he says yeah I think we are let me get the kitchen manager comes out and he's like well we have a job as a dishwasher I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> hired me on the spot. And so that was the first brewery I worked in back in 1992 was the Breckenridge Pub and Brewery when it was just a little brew pub up in Breckenridge. Yeah. And I was ski bumming after college. And so it gave me the first window into the professional brewing world. And I eventually working in the kitchen, worked my way up the line to, uh, you know, line cook and then sous chef. Uh, during my short tenure there of, of less than a year. But at the same time, I kept 
poking into the brewery and asking questions and they eventually let me help out with filling you know hand filling bottles for their sales over the counter like the packaged uh, bombers to go and washing kegs and so that was my first brewery experience and then the next year um, I moved down to Flagstaff Arizona for a job and I got a job there in the kitchen at the Beaver Street um, pub and brewery before it even opened. So I got to see the whole thing come mm. together, the equipment go in. That was really fascinating to me. But I had a degree in environmental studies, and I was pursuing a, a career in, in sort of conservation science. So um, I did that. I ended up going back to school for forestry. And for 15 years, I was really avid home brewer. Uh, and I just love brewing. I would brew all the time. And I, I loved beer. I loved good beer. Uh, discovered good beer there in Burlington with my buddy Matt's homebrew and the Vermont Pub and Brewery was mm-hmm. was uh, was located in downtown. They opened up in 1988, the same year I started at UVM. Um, there was Catamount Brewing um, and and Long Trail started those early years. Um, Love those beers. And so after about 15 years of my homebrewing steadily improving, people kept saying, "Wow, can I?" Are you, do you sell any of this? Can I buy it? And I'm just like, yeah. Well, here, here's two bottles. No, I don't. <laughs> you can't buy it, but I can give you a few bottles. Sure. And so people kept saying, this is better than what I could get in the store. And when I was uh, a kid coming out of college, I didn't really see brewing or being in the beer industry as a calling that was kind of worthy. I was out there to save the world with an environmental studies degree. Yeah. Um, I went back for my master's in forestry, um, and that science background has really served me well in the brewery. Um, but to get to the point of sort of a long story, it was the encouragement from uh, friends and family that uh, I eventually decided, and just maturing enough to see brewing as both an act of creation and a really worthy calling, most especially because at the end of the day, the beer that we make, it creates happiness for people. And uh, that's what I really love most about brewing beer is that people love the the liquids and it creates uh, happy and memorable experiences most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you can remember that, sure. (laughs) And so then I started out with the one barrel system. I was, I had a career in forestry and science and research at that point. And so I'm not quitting my day job. Yeah. I got a one barrel system. I didn't even know the term nano brewery existed. Uh, and someone said, Oh, you're a nano brewer. I'm like, Oh, what? A nano brewer. Yeah. Really small, smaller than micro brewer. And so I was like, oh, okay. And that was in 2008. And I started cranking out one barrel batches and bringing them in my car. I got all licensed, of course. I yeah. built a little, what is amounts to a glorified shed, which I call the most expensive shed in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I started brewing the beer there, would, would do the deliveries myself. And because I had a following already with my homebrew and it was mm-hmm. such small scale, it would sell as fast as I could make it. <laughs> and I was brewing on nights and on weekends. I did that for a year. And, I'm, and I also wanted to test it out. See, is this right. something I really want to do Sure. full time? Do I really want to spend my life doing this? Because I had done that with uh, ski patrolling up at Mad River Glen because I love skiing. And after I moved back from 
being out west for a few years to Vermont and um, to pursue my, my, my master's, I got a job as a ski patroller up at Mad River Glen, yeah. and I did that full time. And I, it kind of, it, for me, it took a little bit of the fun out of skiing because right. it was a recreational pursuit for me. I really enjoyed my time on the ski patrol. Great skills I picked up there. Most importantly, great people that I got a chance yeah. to work with that yeah. are still that are still my close friends. Mad River Glen is like part of my extended family these days. And, yeah. uh, I digress, but I, I still work there part-time. I lead <laughs> naturalist tours and snowshoeing oh, nice. on the weekends during the huh. winter up there. So um, it's been important for me as our business has grown not to not to give that up. But to keep giving you the long story of the trajectory, uh, the trajectory of Lawson's Finest, I, uh, so I quit my job after a year uh, and I went to work in my own little brewery full time and started cranking up the one barrel system. So I went from like 50 barrels the first year to uh, a little over 100 barrels the second year and uh, not much more than over 100 barrels the third year because that was about as, as much as I could do, and I only had four little fermenters, um, and, I, and, and it was overdue. The original vision was if it worked, it'd put in a seven-barrel system, but mm -hmm. instead of taking a year, it took me about three years, which Ooh. is often how things go. Yeah. So in yeah. 2011 was when I brought in the seven-barrel system okay. and uh, got that fitted up, and uh, of course, it was immediately too small, and so I started grinding on the seven-barrel system uh, and uh, making as much beer as I could in, in our little 200-square-foot brewery next to my house in Warren, Vermont, with a, with a cooler attached to it um, and still, still self-distributing. And more and more people kept asking for, yeah. for our beer. So what do I do next? I'm like, I'm not ready with really young kids to build a new brewery. I don't have the capital. Um, I'm not ready to hire a whole bunch of people. I'm not ready for that lifestyle change. So that's when we started working with um, Two Roads Brewing down yeah. in uh, Stratford, Connecticut. And I had read about their plans and their opening and their focus on quality and bringing in all this brand new equipment. And I said, that might be a place that I could make the beer with the quality and the flavor profile that that matches what we do in right. Vermont. And I would be able to uh, hopefully not say no all the time, which I was right, doing. No, we right. don't have enough beer. No, we don't distribute to other states. No, I can't sell you my beer. No, we're not adding any more distribution here in Vermont. And it enabled us to be able to say yes a lot more often. Yeah. And that's where we started brewing the Sip of Sunshine and our Super Session beers in 2014. And so the last four, four years have been been great. We've experienced uh, tremendous growth with those with those beers, and but it clicked. Yeah, it and really you found clicked. that you didn't yeah. you didn't hate this. No, yeah, yeah. yep, yep. Well, I love it. I mean, I found once I got and it didn't going, destroy yeah, your passion for brewing. Not at all. If anything, it made me more passionate about brewing and and more interested in learning all that I could about brewing. Never having been to uh, formal brewing school or any brewing education that's formal and never having worked in someone else's brewery as a, as a full-time employee learning my way around a brewing system. So it was all self-taught. Tell me a little bit about that because then taking your recipes from a one barrel to a seven barrel system and then, then taking from a seven barrel system to I think what is two roads at a hundred barrel? hundred barrel yeah. Rolex, yeah. Right. You know, yeah. that, that had to be a, a very interesting move to, to, uh, 
to take those things and translate them in the way that you wanted to. And I know that, you know, from your perspective, doing it right is, uh, is one of the, the you know, premier uh, driving forces behind what you do. It's paramount. It's, it's, it's all about the, the liquids and uh, the quality of, of what's inside. What really helped me was working with other brewers, doing collaborations in the years that I was hmm. brewing on the seven barrel system. So I worked with um, Paul Saylor and Destiny up at Zero Gravity Brewing to do one of my first collaborations uh, with them on their 10 barrel system because I didn't have enough beer to attend the Vermont Brewers Festival. It required, you know, three and a half barrels, you know, or, or seven half barrels or a whole bunch of logs. You need the volume of three and a half barrels just to attend the festival because it's a multi-session festival mm. with um, great attendance down on the waterfront in Burlington, Vermont. And so they helped me out tremendously by saying, well, why don't we do a collaboration and you can take that beer to the festival. And so we scaled up one of my recipes, the Knockout Blonde, onto their 10-barrel system. So that was my first um, lesson in scaling up. And then scaling up my one-barrel recipes to the seven-barrel system was another lesson in scaling up. And then I worked with um, Mike Gerhardt at Otter Creek for a couple of years making our double-dose annual uh, double IPA collaboration working on their 40-barrel system. Mm. Um, So taking recipes from smaller systems or even just developing recipes like we did with the double dose on their larger system um, gave me some experience in doing that. So when I got to Two Roads in 2014, um, you know, I basically wrote the recipe myself based on their extraction Mm. rate for the malt and and most importantly, in, in doing that, in, in working with Two Roads, I said to them up front, you know, this is great, we've got this all worked out, but everything is predicated on the, the quality of the beer coming out the way that our fans and Lawson's Finest would expect it to. Right. So I'm not moving forward unless the beer comes out right. You know, we'll do a couple of batches, and they were what was fantastic was they were fine with that. They're like, that's that's our... That's our commitment to you too. If the beer, if the if we can't make the beer that you want, then there's no point in moving forward with a relationship like that. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, typically in a contract relationship yeah. like that, they before they start brewing and put that work into to getting you into it, they'd want a long term commitment and more mm-hmm. barrels and you know at least you know a few hundred to a thousand barrels a year to to even get started and. Uh, that, I like that idea that they yeah. uh, they said it, it, it depends on whether it actually comes out the way you want it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fortunate um, for both of us that um, when they started out, there's a real demand for capacity yeah. out there um, before the latest building boom. That a lot of you know a lot of small brewers are looking for capacity as a way to meet the demand that they can't meet. Yeah. Um, so uh, they certainly had more demand for their. Uh, capacity than than they had capacity at the outset right um and it's been they've been very successful in growing their brewery both their own brand um and their contract and alternating proprietorship brewery so i'm actually the licensed brewer when our beers are are made there we we have our you know we have a brewery license both connecticut and federally for the operations down at two roads so it's lawson's finest liquids technically is is making the beer down at two roads uh, under that agreement, um, but the flip side of that too is that having Lawson's as uh, you know a premier customer certainly had to 
uh, be a mark of prestige for two roads in their contract business. Uh, um, I think it's been good for both of us. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, you know, from a customer perspective, you know, going from a hard-to-find beer that, uh, you know, that you know, consumers have to seek out and, uh, and, and you know, go to very specific retail places in a very small footprint, going from there to brewing 100-barrel batches and canning them and pushing them out into retail channels has to be a, a, a bit of a shift, you know, culturally uh, for your brewery and for mm-hmm. your staff. Uh, how how have consumers responded to that, and how has your business changed from that? You know, our business has changed uh, amazingly over the years from being at farmer's markets in the yeah. early years selling our hand-bottled beers to, um, you know, producing, uh, you know, a lot of cases of beer that go out now to six states in different markets. Um, and the only reason that we've... I shouldn't say the only reason, but one of the biggest reasons that we've been successful was that there was that pull there from customers before we distributed in any of those other places that a lot of people were asking for our yeah. beer, looking for our beer, driving to Vermont to get our beer. <laughs> sure. And so um, having that built-in demand um, certainly has made it uh, easier for us, but that's all predicated on having the beer that people want to drink and that it's consistently good and that the quality is there and it delivers what people are expecting. That is an interesting question. Um, you know, obviously you, you make beer that's in high demand, but, uh, you know, to some degree we're watching beer change really fast. Yeah. Um, you know, the, that what consumers are seeking out, what they, what they like to drink and, and, you know, they're, significant shifts even within you know pretty pretty standard styles um how do you keep up with that and how do you balance that core idea of what your beer is and what that brand of of lawson's finest is versus that consumer interest in something new and where their palates are going i don't really know the answer to that question we just keep doing what we're doing and thankfully people people love it um you know, we haven't uh, we haven't jumped on the hazy train. Although our beer, back in the day, they called it hazy, but I think the beers they call hazy IPAs these days. Our our beer, would, I'm not so sure that qualifies for that. It's a little too clear. It's, <laughs> it's got it's, some haze in there. It is funny how yeah. the the you know that definition shifts. Yeah. Um, so so you don't I just you don't folk- consider your beer New England style IPA then. Not really the way it's d- yeah. defined, and I think the peop- the examples that get held up as New England IPAs are completely opaque. You can't see through them, yeah. and if you hold up a glass of sip of sunshine, it's got a little bit of haze in there. But generally, you can you can see through that beer. It's got you know it just has a little bit of that uh, residual hop oil, a little bit of yeast carryover. It is non it's not filtered. Uh, but it does go through a centrifuge, so yeah. it does clarify the beer some. But we we try to leave just the right amount of of haze in there, so yeah. that it presents nicely, and uh, and it has a, a and it has a clean flavor, and that it's you know fairly stable for a few months uh, yeah. as it gets out there. Hopefully, it doesn't last for a few months unless somebody sticks it in their fridge and they wait to drink it. For sure. Um, you centrifuge at all? We centrifuge, yeah. So that uh, that does uh, separate the beer. It does provide uh, clarity to the beer, um, and most importantly, consistency to the beer, so that we are 
producing a consistent product at the end of the day. Um, but it's tough to do because it's an agricultural product. Right, the ingredients right. vary all the time. So we do our best to smooth out those changes. But um, people notice when the ingredients change, and some of it's beyond our control. You can't control how the the growing year was for the hop crop. So for sure. there's some nuances that come through there. But I also think that that's something that uh, can be celebrated, that yeah. this idea of, you know, uh, ultimate consistency and, uh, you know, unchanging, uh, you know, character, uh, you know, is it's not human. It's not real. Yeah. It's not uh, it doesn't doesn't reference the, the world that we live in where these things do change, where weather patterns, you know, affect these crops. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's interesting. It's not just in flavor. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, I've talked to brewers who are like our citra crop this year makes our beer hazier. You know, we mm-hmm. can't uh, you know, we can't. Uh, uh, you know, nothing has changed in our recipe. And, yeah. uh, you know, we just get this effect out of it, um, you know, and that's uh, is that a terrible thing? I don't know. Not if it at is. all. Yeah. yeah, it makes it harder to uh, produce the beer with the profile the ex- exactly the way you want it. Um, but we're uh, we're forward with our customers about that. Say, hey, we're into the new crop uh, of hops, and so you may notice it's a little bit more like this and this, and there's different um, flavors that that present themselves uh, because of the difference in the in the, either the lots or the crop year. Uh, of the hop. So in a way, I, I don't know that we're celebrating it yet as much as we yeah. should, but explaining it. Sure. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. that's an interesting you know position to take yeah. that it actually may create a point of interest for your consumers mm-hmm. to taste how that has shifted a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it creates something new. And then plus now they can check it in as a whole different beer on untapped because it's, uh, it's this whole new crop year, right? <laughs> to right. get an additional one. <laughs> it's, the, it's the 2017 crop exactly. sip of sunshine. Right, right. Well, let's, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about hops. Um, you know, you're really known for your hoppy beers and you make yeah. other beers and you make stouts and you make Belgian style beers. Um, you know, but uh, the beers that, that most people drink of yours, sip of sunshine, super session, the beers that you're, you know, producing and getting out of the market through that contract base. How? Tell me about that development process and how how you settled on, you know, the hops that you use and and how you've built, a, you know, a recipe base to kind of showcase those hops. Yeah, I I mean, first and foremost, I'm a hop head. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, I love my hoppy beers, and so that's why uh, IPAs are are in our wheelhouse at at Lawson's finest. Um, for me, it all developing the beers and how I come up with the recipes it all starts and ends with sensory. So, uh, building a beer with a balanced profile, um, which for me is the right ratios of malt to hot bitterness uh, to how the whole beer comes together, which is that intangible umami. Um, how does what's the mouth feel? What's the body like for the alcohol? that it is and then um, and then really the the sensory how does it smell how does it taste what's the impression after you've swallowed it and it lingers on your tongue for a minute that's that's where I really start and finish with recipe development and it's through being a home brewer for many years of trialing different recipes different variations of um, ratios of of where I add the hops or how late in the boil or how much goes into dry hopping 
um, being able to having luxury as a home brewer for almost 20 years before we started Lawson's Finest. Um, my wife Karen and I should mention her because she's a valuable partner in all of this venture. Uh, so that experimentation sort of honed my, uh, my I guess you would say, uh, the, the skills, but it's on such a small scale. So it's hard to translate that to a bigger scale except through sensory. So yeah. what does it taste like? How does it feel? What's the overall impression of the beer? And, and again, also on the seven barrel system, once I moved up from one barrel to seven yeah. barrel, because the beers went away so fast that I was always experimenting with, uh, with different permutations of the same beer. Like okay. it wasn't at, at all the same um, and still isn't. The beers that I brew on my seven barrel system are a constant source of experimentation, of evolution. I call it the wizard's workshop. Oh. Yeah, nice, it's a lot of fun. Nice. So, because um, there have been days where I've got a whole, you know, yeah. I've got a realm of ingredients right before me, and I don't even know what I'm gonna brew right. that day, and I just make it up as I as I go. I mean, that sounds crazy, but on seven barrels, that's you have yeah. the luxury of of doing that because it's not a lot of volume, and as long as it's, I'm not doing anything crazy because if I did, I'd have to dump it down the drain potentially, right. and those small batch beers, you know, we've never sent one of those down the drain. They all, well, they all yeah. come out, they all yeah. come out good. So it's, it's such an interesting thing because, you know, you, you are, you know, as you build combinations of, of hops in a beer, it, you're, you're painting a bit, um, you know, to use that kind of metaphor, but you're mm-hmm. painting with colors that change through yeah. the process. Yeah. And so you don't necessarily, yeah, you, it's not as if you can think about you know, or look at them and, and know how they're going to interact mm-hmm. with each other you have to take it a few steps further and think about what all of the, the processes are going to do to those, you know, individual flavors and then be able to project out, um, you know, with those experiments, do you, you know, had, when you're brewing those, do you, you know, keep some variables uh, consistent across that so that you can tease out some of the individual impacts of these changes that you're making in these beers? Yeah, definitely. With, with, uh, with IPAs on the, uh, the small batch brewing that I've done, um, the malt bills are, are, they share some consistency. I like to play yeah. around with which specialty malts I use or, and vary a little bit how much uh, I use. But the malt base tends to be um, fairly consistent, and I like using the same pale North American grown um, yeah. malt as, as the base malt. So that's very consistent. It provides that consistent sort of canvas to work with. Um, and then, of course, the water is is consistent and I always, we have very soft water in Warren, Vermont. And that was one of the reasons why um, our beers could translate to Stratford, Connecticut, because they have very soft water. We looked at the chemistry profile and it almost, you know, it almost matched. It was like very serendipitous what oh. we're doing in, in Warren. So I was able to replicate the flavor, that sort of the flavor profile of the beers I'm brewing in Warren down at down at two roads. So the water and the malt base tend to be fairly consistent and then play around with the varieties of hops, the quantities of hops and the timing and the point in the process that the hops get added. The biggest challenge is you never know how it's going to come out until it's finished. Right. Um, but we do hop rubs. So you put the hops in your hands and you grind sure. up the pellets and, you know, smell them and you know you look at them you even look at the you know the lot analysis so you can see um you know the the, the full 
um, spectrum of measurements that they take on those hops and try to take all that information in and then you base it on experience of what's worked in the past. Right. Um, so that's, that's sort of, that's my approach to recipe development and, um, experimenting with hops to, uh, to work on our IPAs. Um, do you use a lot of hops or are you more of a, a single hop guy? Uh, you know, I think there are, there are different brewers that prefer either, you know, two combination hops mm-hmm. or there are some that love to pile six or seven in there so that, uh, you know, those beers can be more consistent over mm-hmm. the long run as some of the individual hops may change. Yeah. Um, what's your philosophy towards that? I, I go both. I, I, I approach it from both ends okay. of the spectrum. Um, but I would say most of the time really, uh, narrow it down to a couple of hops, like two or three hops for yeah. most of the IPAs that I brew or, or even, or even, uh, you know, one hop, you know, the beer, in front of you, the super session number eight is a single hop mosaic uh, session IPA, and our number two is a single hop Amarillo. So it really features the, you know, that that it, it showcases that particular hop variety. Um, let me let me open one of those yeah. right now. <laughs> Perfect. All right, let me take a sip. <clears throat> Are there um, specific combinations? of hops that uh, you find yourself going back to or that, uh, you know, uh, end up balancing each other in uh, very, in ways that you find enjoyable. Um, I know, you know, with a lot of brewers that I talk to, they, they have their go-to combos because they, they, they just offset each other in the, mm-hmm. in the perfect kind of way. What, what are those combinations for you? Uh, well, of course, the new school rage is always like, not always, but uh, often like Citra and Mosaic are a big, uh, you know, very popular combo right. these days. I definitely like that that combo that works for me. Um, and then very traditionally, I love Cascade and Centennial, putting those two together, um, you know, in a in a pale ale or a blonde ale. Um, really, they, they just, they really complement each other nicely. They work well together. With bigger IPAs like Double Sunshine, um, how do you scale that hop experience, you know, to, to create the kind of balance that you're looking for in those bigger beers? Um, do you, you know, are you changing varieties? Are you, uh, you know, simply looking at sheer amounts? Uh, does the technique change? You know, the technique really doesn't change at all. It's just getting the amounts right. Cause yeah. you, from a small batch recipe to, um, a larger recipe, um, for example, with the, you know, developing the sip of sunshine, which is inspired by our double sunshine beer that I make in, in Warren. Um, there's a lot less hops that would go into the kettle because the kettle efficiency is so much, uh, higher, better kettle, uh, utilization of the hops on a hundred barrel tank than on a seven barrel tank. So less hops go into the into the kettle, but uh, but as you scale, there tend to be somewhat similar ratios of hops on the dry hopping side. So whether it's if you're using a a, a pound of hops on a uh, per barrel on a small batch scale, um, it doesn't change dramatically right. on a on a large scale um, because you're not applying heat to it. I guess so. Sure. I, I don't know if that's the right answer, but that's been my experience. So. 
Yeah, there's a, a lot of buzz, uh, you know, about effects of things like biotransformation mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, dry hopping while, you know, there's still some active fermentation, you know, yeah, occurring. For real. Uh, do you yeah. do you play in that uh, in that field? Experiment a little bit with that yeah. on the small batch system. Yeah, yeah. And I where it really comes down to what I prefer as a as a flavor profile more than what's right or what's better. So much okay. about beer, I think, is really about well, what's your preference? Because, and it comes down to the customer's preference. What's their preference? Because if it's not hitting it, then they're not going to buy your beer. Yeah. So um, for me, I, I tend to lean towards uh, a clean profile. And I've, I've found in experimenting and in um, putting in hops like while the, beast, while the yeast is uh, very active and the beer is fermenting, um, I, the flavors of the hops don't come through as cleanly or hmm. as um, clearly, not in a visual sense, but in a sensory sense and in, yeah. in, in, in tasting them or smelling them um, when there's a ton of yeast in the beer still and you're hopping the beer. I like to let the, the yeast settle out uh, before I dry hop, but I've experiment with both. So I'm constantly experimenting in yeah. the seven barrel system to see you know, it's it's about timing too. When in the process are you adding it? So, um, I don't think there's any uh, magic combination or right answer. Um, it's just about building building the beer so that it comes together in the end uh, in the way that the brewer intends. One one of the challenges the brewers who do you know uh, try to attempt those biotransformation uh, you know effects is that it's harder to crop yeast yeah. off of those tanks. Yeah, for sure. Use that yeast because you're not going to repitch yeast with uh, you know, a whole bunch of hop matter. In yeah. It. Um, and so, you know, but I guess I'm out on a seven barrel patch that doesn't matter that much to you. Right. Yeah. But it does, it, it, it does make it harder on a, on a big scale if you can't, uh, repitch that yeah. yeast from the tank, but there's definitely something to bio transformation, yeah. uh, with, with hops and yeast. And even when you're letting the yeast settle out, it's still happening. It's just to maybe a lesser extent or in a different way. And yeah. it depends a lot on temperature too. So are you dry hopping it? at 60 degrees or yeah. 50 degrees or where, where's the temperature of the beer when you're dry hopping. Yeah. I found that it definitely has a very noticeable impact on mm. the finished product and on the impression um, that, the, that the hops lend to the beer. And I'm not sure what the right answer is on that <laughs> one. Um, but, you know. but what temperatures do you tend to dry hop at? I tend to focus on cooling the beer off enough so yeah. that a typical American ale yeast can can drop drop out, not completely drop out, but it does start to clarify and drop out. So mm-hmm. get it down into the 50s, and that that's enough to knock the yeast down and get it settling down and and, and to draw it off uh, before I add the the dry hops. And then you leave it in that temperature range while you dry hop? While I'm dry hopping, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it definitely works for me better uh, to keep the keep the beer um, from crash cooling uh, before you, you dry hop. Sure. One of the biggest uh, you know, issues, especially with you know, hoppy beers, IPAs, and whatnot, uh, are the effects of oxygen in the beer. I mean, it is enemy number one that can turn a, a beautifully designed beer into a, a stale and, and muddy mess. Um, how, what, what steps have you, have you taken in your process to make sure that that hops character doesn't get destroyed by the effects of oxygen? The most important thing, um, for, for us has been 
of course, good brewing side practices. But then yeah. as soon as the beer is finished, always keeping it cold. Mm. That's the best thing that you can do to um, fight the effects of oxidation and staling, which even in the most perfectly packaged beer with low um, low uh, oxygen package in your, in your package over, over time, um, and it's not a lot of time that staling starts to take effect. There's, in, you know, there's um, chemical changes to the beer. And so keeping it cold is the best way to preserve the beer and, of course, time. So we always want people to drink our beer fresh and keep it cold. And so those are the two most important elements once the beer is finished. On the production side, it's really just paying attention to all the fundamentals of, uh, of brewing that are there's nothing new in there yeah. as far as oxidation goes. It's most critical post brewing. Like as soon as you've, uh, you know, as soon as you've fermented the beer, that's where oxidation becomes critical. So making sure all your equipment's in good working order, making sure all your connections are tight, and making sure you're gathering the right data um, to know whether you're you're doing a, a good job on um, preventing oxygen from from reaching your beer in process before it's in a finished product. You, you all have gone to great lengths to make sure that uh, the folks that wholesale, distribute, and sell your beer are maintaining a you know, chain of, of, uh, of storage that's all cold so that that beer gets delivered to consumers in the, the freshest possible way. Um, it has to be, from a business perspective, turning down potential sales channels because they can't you know, store the beer in a certain way isn't a luxury some breweries can, can take, but you've gone forward that way and been successful with it it's yeah it's a challenge it's not the paradigm that uh you know distribution in the modern day yeah was built on ironically the model is that the kegs are all cold but the package is all warm so yeah. go figure <laughs> but uh what we've been why we've been able to be successful with um uh not only convincing but having distributors f- follow through on uh, keeping the beer cold and keeping the supply chain cold right to the customers uh, and at the stores, which is also challenging because that's a whole nother tier because the distributor can keep it cold to the store and the store could put it in the cooler, but then they pull it back out and put it on the shelf later on or they put it on display later on. And so that's always a challenge. But again, thank goodness we had some pull in the market because (laughs) that enabled us, uh, that gave gave me some leverage in, in working with wholesalers who are, you know, our most valuable partner right now yeah. in getting the beer to, to customers because our whole, our whole business is based on distribution right now. And, uh, and they've come along for the ride. And I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm proud of the fact that we're helping to change the paradigm a little bit and we're, uh, educating people about the importance of keeping beer cold as a way of preserving brewery freshness and preserving the beer in the condition that the brewer intended it to reach the the end consumer. Well, right here on this Super Session can, it says, keep cold and enjoy fresh, written right around the top. Um, it has to be a, a, a strange non sequitur for a consumer who would walk into one of those retailers that may not may not follow the rules and see it out warm on a shelf. Uh, does it ever break your heart to see that? Uh, a little bit, but what's really great is the customers are, are advocates. And so they, with social media and 
email people report back to us all the time <laughs> like immediately they're like they're, they've got the beer out warm on the shelf at the store you, go get them <laughs> and we do we very politely oh, call stores yeah. and help educate yeah. them about proper handling of the product and yeah. why it's important to keep the beer cold and it's not just our beer yeah i really hope and i've seen other breweries adopting that mantra and putting it on their package yeah. of both educating consumers and helping to educate the supply chain about the importance of of keeping the beer cold and consuming it fresh. It's a consumable uh, product, so it, most beer is really intended to be consumed fresh, and that's that's in its best state. Of course, not all beers. It varies a lot stylistically, and there are right. a lot of beers that are what I call keeping beers. They don't need to be drank yeah. fresh. Um, and you know all about them, but uh, but most of the styles are really intended to be drank as soon as they're produced or very soon thereafter. For sure. I love that you can pressure your own retailers into the way that they sell it <laughs> just by creating those customer suggestions on your packaging. And it's fascinating because, you know, much, much larger brewers employ and spend gobs of money, you know, to have people do retail inspections and make sure that, uh, you know, their product is in code and, and yada, 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 and stored the correct way. And uh, it's even more fascinating that you can just have your customers do it for you. <laughs> and, uh, we call them the street team. Nice. Yeah. Yep. Nice. And we, we help educate uh, retailers about um, fan expectations because our fans really, they expect the beer to be uh, cold when they go to the store and buy yeah. it. And they expect it to be priced fairly, too, because of the demand being out in, in front of the supply for a while. Um, you know, some folks took advantage of that with price gouging. And so that's another area where we've yeah. um, done plenty of work on helping to educate folks and, um, and, and individuals report back to us when they see something ridiculous. And we can, can at least have a conversation. One of the big things here at the Craft Brewers Conference that, uh, that we saw was uh, a large uh, brew system manufactured by GEA sitting out on the show floor uh, that has a destination of Lawson's Finest. Uh, you are getting ready to undergo a, a pretty major brewery expansion of, of your own and bring some of that brewing back in-house. Is your intention with this kind of, you know, building this production brewery to bring it all back in-house? Will you continue to contract brew at Two Roads? Will there be? You know, will both of those things go concurrently, or what does that future of Lawson's look like for you over the next year? Great question, and I'm not sure about all the answers because I have to rub my crystal ball. But there are a few <laughs> things that are very clear to yeah. us, and we will absolutely, most certainly, still be brewing our sip of sunshine uh, and super session beers down at Two Roads, and I'd eventually like to, you know, develop at least one or more beers that 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 come out of there in the same can package format yeah. because we have such demand for our beer we can't replace what we're doing right. um in stratford connecticut with the new facility that we're building in waitsfield vermont but the new facility with our production brewery with a 40 hectoliter gea system um our own canning line and uh, most importantly, what we've never had, which is being able to create the customer experience, the Lawson's Finest experience yeah. with our tap room uh, and the retail store and a destination for fans of Lawson's Finest to be able to come to, you know, almost every day 
to come and enjoy our beer in our space and to be able to speak directly to them every day about the beers and to be able to offer a much wider variety of beers um, all the time is so exciting um, for us. And so those things are very clear. So they'll run concurrently, our Waitsfield operation and um, our Stratford operation um, down in Connecticut at Two Roads. And so that'll enable us to keep supporting the New England market that we're in um, throughout the Northeast where we're distributing our beer and have beer to sell out the, out the door at our retail store and in the tap room. So it's an exciting time for us. It's a little daunting because we're completely transforming our business yeah. um, in a number of ways, both um, business plan and uh, from an employment perspective. So it's both exciting and daunting at the same time that, you know, we're creating these, we're creating some great jobs and they'll all be really good uh, living wage or salary jobs with benefits um, for the local community. We're anticipating adding, um, you know, at least 25 full-time equivalent positions wow. um, for the new facility and the and the associated taproom and retail store. Um, so for going from a mom-and-pop yeah. business to, you know, full-fledged organization and a company and executing that um, successfully is no small task. Absolutely. What are you most excited about being able to brew more now that you're going to have a nice variety, larger variety, joint. most variety. variety. I mean, every the people keep asking, so what, what are you going to be offering? What's, what kind of beers are going to be at the new brew house? And I was like, well, everything I've been brewing for the last two years that, I mean, two years, 10 years, yeah. let's hit the mark. So, you know, like our English, uh, our dark mild, the carrier coffee, dark mild, uh, uh, the Belgian styles, like our, uh, uh, the basil rhubarb saison is one of our spring seasonals. The spring fever is a 3.8% uh, hoppy session beer that that we just came out with on the seven barrel system. Um, and then the regulars on that small batch system are double sunshine, the Chinookard IPA, our maple nipple, our faced and maple imperial stout, because we've talked a lot about um, the IPAs today, but the maple beers are also really uh, in my wheelhouse, and I began sure. experimenting with maple early on as a homebrewer. Matter of fact, to bring the story full circle, that very fat first batch of homebrew that Matt and I cooked up in my kitchen back in 1990 in Burlington, Vermont, was uh, a maple wheat beer hmm. because Catamount Brewing was making a maple beer at the time, a maple wheat beer, and the Vermont Pub and Brewery was making a maple beer in the spring, and I was really impressed with those beers. There was something about that authentic Vermont ingredient that right. really um, attracted me, and so I've made a number of different permutations of maple beers over the year. So um, the two sort of winners, well, the three that went to the front were the, the maple nipple ale, which is kind of a strong amber, 8%, uh, sort of a straightforward American ale that's built on a really big malty base. Yeah. Um, has a lot of residual sweetness to, uh, to give the impression of maple, because the maple syrup all ferments right out. Right. There's no sweetness that the maple syrup adds to the beer. It just adds flavor, which is very hard to capture when the sugars all ferment out. Right. The maple flavor goes away, and it transforms. So... Um, the malt bill is essential to, to build up that maple flavor. And then, of course, um, our World Beer Cup winning Maple Triple, which is in the competition again uh, this year. We've had great success with that beer, having won here uh, three times before the World Beer Cup in 2010, 12, and 16. 
Uh, so we'll be we'll be gunning for that pair. I'm still gunning for gold. We've got <laughs> we've got two silvers and a bronze. I'm still looking for the gold. It's kind of like the Olympics. Um, it's awesome to win, and it's even more awesome when you get a gold. So um, there'll be those beers. The Knockout Blonde is one of our favorites, and what I'm really excited about is beers that aren't in our portfolio currently, um, like a really nice, crisp, clean lager that's that's lower alcohol. Um, you know, having a tart beer, uh, you know, it's kind of like the like a Goza or a Berliner Weiss type of beer something that's tart and doesn't take a year to make um (laughs) would be would be great because those to just round out the the whole the whole styles and like i said at the beginning um of our conversation before the podcast was uh you know something like a a lower alcohol nitro stout is something i'd really like to have in our portfolio even if it's seasonal but the the best thing is we'll have our tap room so there'll be a constantly um, varying uh, rotation of beers yeah. going through the tap room and uh, and our retail store. Well, we can't wait to visit once you're up and running. Yeah, Sean. this autumn, autumn of 2018, we uh, will fling open the doors and we hope a few folks will show up. Well, we'll be up there this autumn to come see you. Excellent, Sean Lawson. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, on the Jamie. Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. If people want to learn more about the beer that you make, uh, where can they find uh, Lawson's? Lawson'sFinest.com. We've got information about our beers, the locations where you can buy our beers, uh, and we're posting uh, videos and photos of the new construction and the new brewery, keeping people updated every month. And uh, we put out a monthly beer news on the website there the first of the month every month so you can catch up with what's going on at Lawson's Finest Liquids. We'll come check you out. Excellent. If you've enjoyed the podcast, thank, thank you, Sean. Yeah, Thank you, you so bet. much. If you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how to brew beer and uh, those fantastic brewers like Sean who make some of the best beer in the country, uh, subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. Uh, tune in next week for another episode. Cheers. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by GEA. Around the world, every second liter of beer is brewed with the aid of systems and processes from GEA because their solutions address even the smallest details of the brewing process. GEA's range of services include everything from engineering, manufacturing, delivery, installation, automation, servicing, and more. At GEA, their goal is to help brewers make more beer of the highest quality in a cost-efficient and sustainable manner. To learn more, visit GEA.com and be sure to follow the GEA Craft Brewing page on Facebook. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.